0: Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is provided for you by the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Government Department. I wanna thank you for joining us as we explore different topics about government. Some may be surprising to you and some may not, so please enjoy. Welcome to episode 15 of the Let's Talk Government podcast, Today, we're gonna to talk about international impact of the rise of undemocratic forces and the violent anti-establishment right-wing movement in the United States. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Abdallah Bata and Dr. Tom Inglot from the International Relations Program at Minnesota State University, Mankato. You will recognize our honored guests from some prior episodes of the podcast. So I think the most obvious place to start is, why don't we start about the defeat of President Trump and his far-right wave that came up during that defeat? How does that impact us in the in- international world? Dr. Batal, would you like to start?
1: Yeah, sure. I think, I think one of the most significant worldwide uh, currents that has taken place in the last let's say, two decades. It's not new, but in the last two decades, we've seen a surge of right-wing, far-right-wing movements that uh, altogether, whether they are in the United States or elsewhere in the world, share a number of common characteristics uh, and, you know, uh, adapted to each country, obviously, but there are a lot of commonalities to them. So I think this is quite significant in world politics. And um, I think attendant to that is the idea that uh, leaders of countries think, as uh, President Trump would like them to think, of their country first, or America first, um, New Zealand first, uh, uh, you know, Belgium first, France first, UK first, and so on. And that has a huge impact international relations not to mention of course all of the other important things that have to do with immigration and having to do with multiculturalism and having to do with multilateralism you know and um, and uh, 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 all of those all of those issues are definitely impacted now the uh, demise of the trump administration and the fiasco that culminated all of this Uh, Namely, the attempt by um, the leader of the extremists, uh, 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 President Trump, uh, attempt to essentially stage a coup uh, of sorts uh, against the oldest democracy around, and most viable democracy, and uh, that obviously did not succeed, but... uh, one thinks back at it and thinks that that could have been very, very bloody and very, very tragic for the United States. I think there are lessons also to be learned from that in the other cases around the world.
0: Before we go to Dr. Inglot, uh, Dr. Bata, you threw out a phrase that probably most of our listeners have never heard. We've all heard of multiculturalism, but will you explain what you meant by multilateralism?
1: Multilateralism in in international relations refers to basically uh, countries coming together, jointly making decisions about important matters relating to them and to the world at large. Uh, The opposite of that, uh, in terms of its definition, would be unilateralism. An example of that would be, for example, President George W. Bush Uh, invading Iraq, and uh, basically we want to do it regardless of what the rest of the world thinks about it. And multilateralism, a good example of that uh, would be what his dad did back in 1991, uh, when the United States led uh, the campaign to expel Iraq from Kuwait. That would be multilateral under the umbrella of the UN and the Security Council, joined by some 30 plus countries. Whereas his son's venture or misadventure, if you will, to Iraq was unilateral, meaning we're going to do it, uh, you know, regardless of what all Europe thinks about it, regardless of what the uh, Arab League thinks about it, uh, or the rest of the world, we're going to do it. Anybody who wants to join us can be part of this so-called um, coalition of the willing.
0: Great. Thank you. I I think listeners probably just learned a new phrase for a concept that they understand. So Dr. Inglat, what do you think? What do you think about the defeat of President Trump and the far right movement?
2: Okay, uh, we can look at it from the standpoint of defeat. And we can also look at the standpoint of what we learned from it and what lasting impact uh, Trump had. So of course, the defeat itself is very, you know, Reason for optimism, and a lot of countries embraced it, but also uh, Trump unleashed forces that are far from defeated around the world. And so, from the optimistic standpoint, there are a number of people that are widely painted by the same brush as uh, quote unquote liberal elites which sometimes is a pejorative term because we live in a time and age when any kind of elite is considered the enemy of people in democracies, which I can return to later. But the so-called democratic forces, democratic parties uh, that represent establishment, especially in Europe, Great Britain, Canada, countries like that, uh, even developing countries like in Latin America, Africa, there are a lot of people who are looking with the very optimistic way in the 90s, early 2000s when democracy was spreading, that kind of group. Uh, Of course, there's optimism that something can be saved from, uh, you know, Obama years and even earlier when America was leading. So hope that Biden can, and he's giving us that hope because he's giving all these speeches and proclamations that he can repair the damage. So there's that part, we don't know yet how successful, but there's also another side to it, which is, uh, a fear that those forces are, of course, much bigger than Trump and they still spread around the world, like Dr. Bata was saying about right-wing extremism and nationalism. And I just reread recently um, uh, this famous article by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History, where he talks about what's going to happen. He was very optimistic and, of course, people accuse him of being too optimistic that democracy will triumph and all that. So. Now the obvious reaction would be that's another confirmation that uh, Fukuyama was wrong because democracy is not triumphing and but uh, something important he said you know what is the potential of nationalism to connect uh, these right wing forces around the world and uh, he said that fascism was different because it's shared a sweeping ideology that was easily transportable between Italy and Spain and Germany and all that And it had a lot of connecting elements that could be implanted in many countries, even though in practice, these countries were not the same, but it had much more of a sweeping uh, global appeal, which contemporary nationalism according to him didn't have. So let's look at Trump as a nationalist. Did he have an appeal or not? On one hand, you know, you can say, uh, Steve Bannon traveled to all these countries are trying to create this, this nationalist international group which is a contradiction in terms because every country is pulling its own way. You cannot be America first and Britain first or China first, you know, at the same time because it, the countries are competing. So, um, but on, on one level, like I said, he is kind of reignited and encourage each country to pull its own way. Can I give you an example because a family member of mine traveled to China right after Trump announced his America first policy and was standing in line customs, you know, control and passport control. And that person is the only American in line with an American passport was in, in the front, but that official pulled that person to the back and said, oh, stand on the back. And half an hour passes, one hour passes and she's still on the back. I said, what happens? And she's finally almost the plane is taking off and she's the last one to, to and shows the uh, the, and Pascal says, what happened? Why did you put me on, on on the back of the line? And this official says, China first. Wow. This, is a real, this is a real example that really happened. Right, <laughs> yeah. oh my
0: gosh, wow. So, you know, that's actually very interesting because that was part of Trump's mantra is, you know, make America great, put America first, which is definitely an isolationism type philosophy. Where are we still seeing that? I mean, Trump is now out of presidency and we know there's not a magic switch that resets everything when presidency transition. But are we still seeing that putting the country first around the world that hasn't really changed much in the wow. last month? And if so, can you give me an example? Like the first one I think of is Britain, right? Now it's, they pulled out of the, uh, Europe, the EU. They're very much now Britain is important. But are there other examples that are closer to us?
2: Well, definitely. Uh, Poland, I follow closely, is exactly the same sentiment. And it touches on many different levels because I'm not going to use just this example, but everywhere in the world, uh, are two different levels. One Example of going first would be to emphasize what the country is digging its own, you know, creating its own myth, its own history that's supposedly better separate from other histories. Like countries in Europe, they want to be, you know, subordinated to the European Union, they want to follow their own policy, their own culture, even religion. In Poland, religion is a big thing that is dividing society and, and so forth. But there's also another level. Uh, you know, uh, that we have to talk about when we say America's impact. Uh, We have to remember that America is the leader, not just in terms of power, the military, but also discourse. We provide, because English is the world language and not British English anymore, American English, which is not the same. The vocabulary expressions. If you watch, I am just watching this Danish movie from some years past, uh, Borgen on Netflix. And when they communicate, uh, you know, at different levels in society, they use American expressions, American words all the time in every language. And it's not just the words, it's the meaning. You know, when America is, America's discourse is translated into other countries discourse. uh, And that includes the right wing expressions. And and that one thing I wanna emphasize because I don't wanna monopolize this discussion just to end with it this deep anti-state sentiment. So whoever is against the state and Trump used that and the media, this is another connecting element. So supposedly we are governed by this cabal of secret bureaucracy, state political parties, leads mainstream media, all this language that Trump emphasized so much. This is in every country being used by, and uh, we already talked about it, both left and right wing opponents of the state as such, which means the structure that holds any government together in any society. And that is being undermined at so many different levels and Trump contributed to it because he was saying, I'm a businessman, I'm coming from the outside, I'm gonna destroy the state, this is your enemy. But then he did not propose anything to replace it. So we have this huge anarchical movement around the world, many different shades and sizes and against every state which is confusing people and, and not showing any directions, but you know just wrecking the, the system. That's the big call right now.
1: Well, if I may, I just add a little bit to this: is uh, the widespread anti-establishment, anti-establishment in the form of the state, of course, uh, and uh, which helped the, the marginal far uh, uh, right extremists to rise up and and uh, uh, you know, come in to represent the downtrodden, so to speak. Uh, and the other side of it in terms of Europe, of course, is uh, the EU, anti-EU. And this is beyond, uh, beyond uh, Britain and Farage's uh, Brexit party, uh, Orban in Hungary, likewise Le Pen uh, in France, uh, the alternative in Germany, uh, all of them basically are uh, anti-EU uh, with different manifestations mm-hmm. of that. But I don't think that it is so much, it is so much Trumpism that, um, that we could draw um, lessons from with respect to this one because I do think that there are obje- objective conditions that in part are um, responsible for this. I think one of them has to do with the fact that many of these countries experienced recession and they became a burden on the EU, uh, whether it's Ireland, whether it's Greece or others. Uh, and uh, e- economic conditions, I think, are an important factor. A- another one, the um, refugee crisis, say 1914, 19, I'm sorry, 2014, 2015 on uh, I think is in part responsible for that I think I think uh, uh, the coming of particularly Muslims not immigrants I mean you you hear the talk in Slovenia in Poland in some of the other places is white immigration is fine but brown immigration is not Christian immigration is fine but not Muslim immigration is is, is not and uh, I think that that is part of it, and that relates to cultural identity. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, there are people in Germany and elsewhere who, in France, who call themselves ger- generation identity. I mean, And, and their call is to reconquer Europe, reconquer Europe. That's the terminology. Reconquer Europe, uh, you know, for the white Christian, uh, you know, uh, ethnic groups. And uh, essentially the idea is uh, to expel everybody else. And uh, so I think these conditions uh, will continue to be there. And I do think that here, you know, the optimism that um, Fukuyama had, uh, remember Fukuyama is writing in the late 1980s, the Soviet Union is about to fall, the Berlin wall fell. Uh, There was consensus uh, about the role of NATO and, the EU became stronger, if you will. There was there was a sense of optimism, and uh, but of course those conditions don't <laughs> don't uh, stand still, so to speak. They change, and with that, uh, unpredictable things happen. I mean, who would have thought um, some of the you know people on the margins getting power, including Trump, including uh, Macron. Uh, he, Macron's uh, partner in creating uh, Unmarch March uh, indicated that all we had was a website and a database of membership. That's it. There wasn't much of any, mm-hmm. you know, mounting campaign here that uh, kind of took over. Uh, it was it was on the fringe, and uh, the same thing I think one would say with the President Trump. President Trump uh, auditioned for the extreme far right uh, groups here to kind of burnish his credentials uh, by beginning to talk about uh, President Obama as being a foreigner and, you know, and uh, he's taken over and all of those liberals that are, you know, uh, helping him in and to emerge as the leader. But nobody would have thought that uh, Trump would make it close to the White House. Uh, He did. Right. right, and he emerged as the leader of the conglomerate far right in the United States. He's not attached to anyone uh, branch, if you will, but he represents the you know the whole. And uh, so, be- beyond beyond Trump, I think there are conditions that uh, will continue to impact uh, you know the currents, uh, the political currents in Europe and elsewhere in the world.
0: So I want to take a little bit of a jaunt down a philosophical lane. As we're talking about this, some ideas popped into my head, but how much do you think the, in, the distance in memory, so World War II, if we're looking at World War II, that the generations that were adults during World War II are, are passing away. The, that number is very low. You have children that were born at World War II and after that are now in positions of power, but thinking about the world impact of World War I and World War II, we have very few people who are actually alive that can share the narrative and the actual history of that. And does that impact our ideas about isolationism and coalitions because we don't have that memory? And then the other one I wanna throw out since you brought up Berlin Wall, um, is that's been over 30 years. So the people that have actual memory of that do not include the younger generations. Um, If you're looking at the ones that are in high school now in college now in the workforce, they have no concept of what the division was between Europe and Russia and the Berlin wall in Germany. Do you think the loss of that actual physical memory about those major times in world history is impacting our ideas about isolationism and partnerships?
2: You want me to take on to take this on? Go ahead,
0: Tom. Why don't you go first? I just want to clarify
2: one thing. Um, uh, what Abdallah just said uh, on on the uh, tr- impact of Trumpism, I was uh, I, I absolutely agree that there are all these domestic and uh, foreign, uh, you know, sources in every society of these changes, including the U.S. But what I was going to say, and maybe I didn't explain it well, was that uh, what has not changed now is, and it still continues despite the weakness of the United States, is the fact that all these societies when they make an argument why they should do this, why they should attack the state, why they should believe in right-wing ideologies, they use the United States constantly as a point of reference. They need that outside power to validate their own arguments. Not so much, this is not the cause of what's going on, it's just that an, an additional you know, uh, explanation they, they use in every discussion, especially smaller countries, they say, but look at the United States and all sides use it to their own advantage, okay? And Trump gave ammunition to those forces that were marginalized and now they can say, oh, America is, the, and also forces that attack the the order. And when it comes to generations, of course it's true. There's one advantage of our generation now and the way we study history. If someone is paying attention, There have been wonderful studies, and we have so much information what actually happened, both bad and good with the war and after the war and, and with the Berlin Wall, we have so much access to good solid information and research if we really wanted to. But the problem is of course, nobody's reading anymore. Nobody's following. So right after the war, there were a lot of things that were not well researched, but people were reading, following, arguing. Now, nobody's interested. So people are not reading anything. They're watching videos on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So we cannot have a real debate on those issues, even though we have information even more perhaps than eyewitnesses had. Because we can know more about Holocaust from all these studies now than one or two eyewitnesses who know the slice of from their own experience, however horrible it was. But there's so much you can learn if you want to the problem is who wants to, right? So there's no discussion. And there's a danger in it because anything you now talk about is, you know, filled with emotion and half-truth, misinterpretations, wrong sources. So the, 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 it's impossible to hold a reasoned debate and also sell it to the public, make the public aware that all this knowledge is at your disposal, it's your computer, just access it, but nobody wants to do it. So... You know, people want to be interested in in making money and you know, engaging in in uh, economic success and whatever. is one of the problem of this generation. Of course, it's not true. It's it's a lot of inequality, but an average family lives much better than ever lived in these societies. So it's not you know, this this most desperate and poor people who are joining those movements. Uh, business owners. Just read in the New York Times yesterday that you know, a large percentage of those people who stormed the capital were business owners. People with good professional jobs, military, former military, former police, it's a cross section of society from different walks of life. Young, old, women, men, uh, you know, regular people next door. So it's not the, the impoverished rising against the, you know, the cri- economic crisis. It's, it's much more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, history is not, I I think history is like a chest of resources that we return to and select from it those which support our inclinations. And I think that's what happens with people. So people find inspiration going back to the Civil War, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why they they would, you know, carry their uh, Confederacy flag into the the, uh, White House. Like that was their inspiration. Uh, but here's a good example. is where you have basically in Europe uh, a plethora of uh, entities that are neo-Nazi fascist uh, groups that are emerging, uh, I- including in France. Including in France, neo-Nazi groups associated with Feliz, for example. Uh, in Greece, in Sweden, the Swedish uh, you know, party. And and others, and you say, well, the, the recent history says, this is something that you wouldn't wanna emulate, uh, but there we go. Same thing in the United States, neo-Nazi groups. So people look back to history and look for inspiration. I, I remember the guy that, uh, that made the attack on Christchurch in New Zealand and killed 51 mm-hmm. worshipers mm-hmm. in a mosque. Mm-hmm. And his, his, his gun, you know had pictures on it and and historical uh, uh you know uh, uh historical uh effects if you will uh, and uh including including the mention of the polish king that um uh, uh, that expelled the uh or broke the siege that
2: uh of
1: Army yeah. had on yeah, Vienna, yeah.
2: so this
0: goes back hundreds
1: yes. of years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember, I remember in the Bosnia-Serbian, uh, um, uh, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina fight versus uh, uh, Serbia, uh, uh, where the Serbians were talking about year
0: 1389,
1: year 1389. Wow, they remember the Ottoman Empire, you know on what it did to them in year 1389, mm-hmm. selectively. This is, we select from history those which support our inclinations and politics is about expediency and opportunism. And so those demagogues that uh, can exploit that, and the, much like President Trump, eloquent, but a demagogue exploited it and, uh, you know, uh, rose to power. And the system allowed for that, you
0: know. Well, thank you for indulging my little uh, question about history. and So let, let's let's come, come back to current times here. So we know that the United States has used it as an example in parts of arguments, but what about our relationships? We now have, have had a, transis, just a transition in presidency, but how is our relationship going to be different, or maybe even constrained with, let's start with the Latin American countries. We know some of them were very big supporters of Trump. What do you anticipate that relationship being with them as we move forward? Like Mexico, yeah.
2: Yeah, well, that's interesting, but I, uh, you know, what I noticed right away with Biden, I, I, I noticed very little attention to Latin America. And that's been, it's kind of interesting that the only president that paid attention to Mexico right away and did something which is our closest neighbor was paradoxically George W. Bush because I spoke to the we had a visitor on campus many years ago his name was Jorge Castaneda he was a former presidential candidate in Mexico and foreign minister of Mexico during the Iraq war so I had the privilege of hosting him and talked to him extensively and I was driving him to campus and he explained to me that this was the only president who really cared about Mexico and solving the immigration issue because he his first visit you know uh, to the White House that he invited was Mexican President Fox so that problem has been festering for years but that's been the case for all administrations and Biden is no exception completely ignoring Latin America as a priority. So I don't see much hope there because the relations are strained. Of course, Venezuela is a big issue. We don't have a good policy towards these countries that are sending the migrants. It's not Mexico that's sending mi- migrants to us. Now it's Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala, these three countries. And we have very bad relations with them. We don't have a good program to ensure that maybe we have some legal migration or something going on. The countries are in very bad economic shape. So. And they are small countries, so the amount of money we are spending in Iraq and Afghanistan, if we took only a fraction of this money and spent to help these three small countries, there would be so much progress, and people would stop coming. But we never done it. So there is no lobby. There is no strong lobby pro Latin America. And when I look at, because I recently re, kind of rewatched this. Video and I recommend to everyone to watch it. It's called the final year HBO video of the last year of the Obama administration. And it's available canopy. So I watched it and I also use it for my classes. So uh, that kind of described uh, from the kitchen side, it was kind of an internal view camera going to all these nooks and croonies of the White House and uh, interviewing people who made the foreign policy under Obama. And I see the same crowd kind of joining Biden now, Mm -hmm. with almost no exception, is kind of the same people coming back. So they don't have many new faces. And nobody really interested in Latin America that much that I see. They, you know, proud we have Latinos in this position, that position. But there's a difference, you know, having Latinos from America as opposed to, you know, anyone from Latin America and caring about. So I don't see much progress, unfortunately. And then like I said previously because of this transactional nature and some populist leaders who liked Trump, we had paradoxically better relations than we are going to have now, that's what I see. And when it comes to other parts of the world is also uh, pretty confusing because Europe has learned the lesson that they cannot afford to rely on America.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And now not relying on America, meaning relying on its own resources. So they are acting pretty boldly, but they are kind of shooting above their weight because Europe is not ready to act in unison on the level they pretend that they can act. They tried with the vaccine and just fell flat on their face because they are not ready for something. They, they thought, oh, after Brexit, we'll show them that we can do things in grand scale. We can create an army and we can vaccinate everybody they cannot even secure the borders well, there's arguments. So, you know, it's still years away from doing that. And of course, we have Germany in crisis as well, which was the main European country putting everyone together, right. this conflict. So, you know, the United States is, is still this mm-hmm. quote, in quote, indispensable force that people want to rely upon, but of course, it's not strong anymore. So we have a vacuum being created, and I'm not sure if Biden can fill the vacuum with his executive orders and actions, you know. You need a bold vision, you need a lot of money, which we don't have to spend it You know, I did some informal discussion with my students and it's like 99% of all people in this country believe we should not spend a cent overseas. We should spend all the money at home. So that's another barrier. So I can go on and on on this topic. It's it's a really uh, very difficult situation in.
0: Well, and I'd like to just take a moment to have Dr. Bata talk about <clears throat> maybe what the, excuse me, impact would be in the Middle East with our relationships with Saudi Arabia, Iran. What do you see happening there?
1: Well, I think there is a correction that is taking taken place uh, from the Trump administration What Trump has done significantly in foreign policy was the uh, making the United States a party, full party, to the Arab-Israeli conflict, and the endowment he has given Israel uh, by rubber stamping Jerusalem as its capital, and by uh, by using uh, the significant leverage the United States has uh, with. Uh, weak, small countries in the Gulf, uh, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, and uh, and Morocco, uh, and Sudan, uh, countries that are in trouble, and um, uh, to normalize with Israel, uh, in spite of the fact that Israel continues uh, to occupy and expand uh, its uh, it's, uh, its its control over the uh, Palestinian uh, territories uh, negating essentially what uh, had been a consensus in the international community, namely the creation of a two-state for the two parties, uh, the so-called two-state solution, which United States uh, promoted, uh, but uh, now is behind. Now, uh, what can President uh, Biden do? Perhaps not much. Uh, in this area but obviously this will have to be reversed but I don't think he will have the leverage to reverse it because the U.S. Congress is more uh, uh, more uh, hawkish uh, than the Israeli government in these areas Uh, and that's why some people said that you know among the other areas occupied by Israel is Washington D.C. you know because of the support that the Congress gives blind support Uh, in all ways, political and monetary and so on and so forth. So this is a core problem in the region that everything, if you look closely, relates to it one way or the other. And so that I think, uh, and perhaps unfortunately, not a a whole lot can be done about it in the very short, very short term. Uh, Likely to to, uh, lead to disastrous consequences down the road because, the status quo is untenable.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: extremely untenable. It's not going to last forever. Uh, uh, so that's that's one. I think uh, the role of the United States has expanded. In some respects, people thought Trump was pulling troops out of, and he did pull uh, some troops out, but he also injected some other troops. And when it came to what he was doing in Syria, for example, he said, well, we shifted them to the, to the oil areas because we want to control the oil. <laughs> he didn't have any hesitation in, in, saying, in saying that. And uh, so United States, uh, I think Kroll will moderate a little bit uh, because President Biden talked about um, uh, pulling the plug on the support of the Saudis, for example, in the Yemen war, it's been tragic, disastrous. And the United States has been a partner to the Saudis in that disastrous uh, war. Uh, uh an intervention in there likewise perhaps in syria and elsewhere so we will see some moderation but not gigantic uh leaps because i don't think uh, uh, president biden uh, you know is uh, you know has in mind any major initiatives in that area united states policy has been to manage conflict uh, and keep it in the wraps that's been the case. Um, but what uh, Trump did obviously is uh, is uh, you know, brought everything, you know, on its head and uh, interjected in major ways, making his son-in-law the arbiter of peace in the Middle East as well as other areas in the world. So that's what I think in terms of the Middle East in terms of Iran, uh, I think UNISH will return to the negotiating table because that's really the best alternative available. Notwithstanding the rhetoric that uh, President Trump had uh, toward Iran, Iran got stronger uh, and got closer to a nuclear weapon under his, uh, you know, under his administration than before. Uh, the same thing with North Korea. Notwithstanding the bombastic rhetoric that the president had vis-à-vis uh, North Korea, North Korea today is closer, much closer. Of course, it does have nuclear weapons to other areas, including uh, long range missiles and uh, other areas. So little change, I think, but normal. And that's an improvement. That's an improvement because at least it brings down the tensions that could otherwise be there.
2: Tom,
0: like, did you have a comment? Yep. Yeah,
2: I have a, something to add. I was thinking as Avdallah as was speaking about the Middle East, which I know much less about. I just l- heard today in the news that Saudi Arabia is uh, being cut off from our aid. Not only the hardware, but actual technical assistance, because apparently all these planes, sophisticated planes that we're using in Yemen for bombing, they were all serviced by American personnel on the ground. They were putting the bombs on, they were checking the technical condition of the planes. So all those teams are being pulled away. So it's not only the hardware, they're not gonna sell them more weapons, but they're gonna pull out all the technical assistance. So definitely Saudi Arabia is probably fearing the most what's going to happen. But. When I look at the whole of Middle East, it's basically our uh, foreign policy for a long time had three legs and were not, not necessarily coordinated. That was Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, mm-hmm. the most important allies for years and decades. So I don't think it's going to last even Israel because now Biden is is, is already sad. He does not support settlements and he wants to um, have an outreach to the Palestinian uh, Authority and things like that. So. But the question is, what's going to replace it? I'm afraid that no alliance will be possible in the region with any country now. And that's a problem because we cannot have a good tie with Iran no matter what happens. Turkey is already lost because they prefer to do it Trumpian way and negotiate deals with Russia and whoever comes along. So President Erdogan of Turkey is a complete lunatic when it comes to his outlook, so we cannot rely on him. And uh, there's no other country I can think of that we can rely upon to conduct, uh, you know, Iraq, blew in our face. They're supposed to be a big ally, but now they are more controlled by Iran if, than anyone else. So you know, I don't see any future with us having true alliances in the region. And that's a big challenge for Biden. I don't know what he's going to do.
0: <laughs> well, so for the closing, oh, I'm sorry. Did you have a comment there, Abdullah?
2: Well, what I was going to say is, you
1: know, we talk about. I mentioned the commonalities among those far right uh, groups that have to do with the, being anti-establishment, anti-Jewish, anti-Islamic, uh, and the anti-multiculturalism. There is a lot of cultural elements, you know, in that, um, and uh, uh, yeah, multi uh, anti-multiculturalism, as I, I said, and I think. You know, for example, I look at the Europeans and see, you know, their anti-immigrant, anti-refugee sentiment. And I say, well, these Europeans were all too happy to uh, recruit uh, people from the Commonwealth countries, from the Caribbean, from Asia to come and and rebuild Europe after the Second World War. We're too happy to get them. Not only that, we're too happy to uh, colonize them colonized those areas and were too happy to support misadventures in the Middle East, for example, uh, that uh, ruined the economies there and led to refugees and elsewhere. the role that is played by United States and Europe. In the Middle East, for example, the war in Iraq and the devastation that took place there wreaked havoc in the region. Uh, It went from Iraq to Syria to elsewhere, basically, the interventions in Yemen, the intervention in Libya, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, in Syria and elsewhere. All of those have to be factored into the equation. The far right, after enough, thinks about it in terms of assimilation,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and uh, cultural issues. And here we are being invaded by Muslims who are gonna change our culture and take uh, our land and make us a minority in our, in our land without thinking about the consequences that ensue from the uh, interventions and the you know role played by the major powers, including the United States and the European countries, NATO and others. Um, all of that has to be factored in, I think, in our discussion about the far right. The conditions, I think, and those commonalities will continue. Uh, some of them they will continue because. You know, I mean, uh, we know here President Trump passed a, a huge tax cut, and we say tax cut for the rich. Indeed it was. Uh, president Macron is considered to be the president of the rich, not of the poor. Economic troubles will make people who are downtrodden, uh, res- uh, resenting the establishment, and want to rebel. So the takeover, the conquering, the conquering of the white of the of the the Congress, the conquering of Europe, uh, is basically their, you know, their, uh, their, uh, you know, a rally cry, so to speak, uh, because that's what they're thinking. They're thinking is we want our country back, we want our culture back. We want it's back. It's like okay, who snatched it from you? <laughs> so. I think that will continue. I think we will continue to see this wave uh, that is the far right continuing uh, for the foreseeable uh, future. And those tensions will continue to be there, but perhaps, uh, hopefully, things will stabilize down the road.
0: Well, you actually just did a better summary than the question I was going to ask you. But here, I'm going to put put both of you in the hot seat for your closing thoughts. So you are now an advisor to President Biden on foreign policy, and he wants to know what should he do now in the short term? What should he address first? Um, Is there a specific country? Is there a specific policy? Is there some specific appointments he needs to make? And I'm going to put you on the hot seat to decide on something he should do right now. What advice would you give him? And I'm going to go back to Dr. Bata and then we'll end with Dr. Engelot. So what would yes, you tell President and, Biden? I'm
1: sorry, I'm receiving a call at the same time. So I'm <laughs> going to pull the plug on the call. Uh, well, I think, you know, he's doing some of that already. I think uh, the, the notion that the United States should pull the plug from the, what I call partnership in Yemen, uh, because that has really resulted in a genocide. And what else we could call that? Country has been devastated, by the intervention sponsored by the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates with conflicting agendas, actually. uh, Under the guise that, while they're fighting Iranian forces on uh, Yemeni land. Uh, And so I think, you know, that the Biden administration seems to be wanting to do something about that one. A bit more difficult, the Arab-Israeli conflict. I think the return to the table and to do something to reverse... The uh, I think the rubber stamping that was made by the Trump administration unilaterally, no negotiations, no consultations whatsoever. This is what he called the deal of the century. And um, yeah, deal of the century for whom? It certainly was a deal of the century for Israel to the exclusion of uh, the interlocutors on the other side that could negotiate with it. I think some moderation in that is likely to take place, but perhaps not very substantive in the short term. Uh, I think uh, moderating the tensions with Iran would be another one, uh, stabilizing Iraq. Iraq is in a mess as well. Perhaps uh, Syria, uh, Syria likewise, uh, You know, improving at least the atmosphere. And that is good, that's, a, that's positive. So that's what I think in terms of what needs to be done in the Middle East. Now, obviously, in terms of NATO, in terms of the others, returning to simply multilateralism is very, very important. The United States is an important uh, member of NATO and needs to uh, take its proper seat there and not just be just another, another country or talk about withdrawal is, is very, very significant.
0: All right. Well, thank you. All right, Dr. Ingla, what would your be your advice be? I think that
2: I'll just focus on the one element because uh, uh, Dr. Batar just covered the whole world. I'll just focus on one element that I think is missing. It's been kind of talked about on the margins, but uh, Biden is contemplating holding a democracy summit by the end of the year, kind of reinvigorate the uh, image of and uh, meaning of democracy around in, um, around the globe. But what I think he should do, and uh, you know, is be careful not to repeat this kind of a summit of world leaders and major figures, you know, heads of government and so forth, but rather reach out to the people. And what I have specifically in mind that we have a new wave of resentment toward this censorship of social media, which is picking up in many different shapes and forms. And I think what happened is, That uh, billions of people around the world flocked to Facebook and Twitter and Telegram and all that. And they were convinced by the very skillful marketing propaganda of these companies that they are joining a free world community of expression. Forgetting that from the very beginning, I don't know how that happened that so few people realized from the very beginning they should have known it was a commercial enterprise built on profit. And who is in charge of it as the owners of these companies? This is not, people are not the owners of these social media. But this was the ideal that they hoped to join. That has now been completely compromised. And there are all kinds of forces, and that includes far right, that includes far left, that have one joint project that they focus on, which is fight the censorship and also fight the government who is supposedly condoning this, right? So what we need to do is an outreach that focuses on this and other aspects that can allow democracy to flourish, to give people sense of empowerment and also that maybe government working with not just the companies, but civic organizations, movements, democratic movements, make sure that social media are for the people and the government had helped them access this, not ruled by three or four individuals who have billions of dollars, not dominated by some shadowy extreme groups, but something that we can really use to make democracy real and, and you know have some substance. That's what young people expect right now.
0: Well, thank you both. You always I love talking with you because I always know that there's more I need to pay attention to in the world. So I do appreciate that. And I appreciate your thoughts on this. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash Let's Talk Gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening.